orphans. It's an emotive word, is it not, that conjures up heart-rending images of parentless children. And the devastating effects of AIDS has left millions of orphans worldwide, especially in the continent of Africa. And even closer to home in Europe, even a cursory search on the internet reveals page after page of pictures of children who cry out for help. One from the northeast of India summarizes it all. Probably can't read that on the screen, but the sign that they've written says, we too need parents. The word orphan is actually derived directly from the Greek word orphanos. It's only found twice in the New Testament. It's found in the little book of James, which reminds us that God the Father cares for orphans, for parentless children, and so should we. James 1.27, James writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The only other place where it occurs is found on the lips of Jesus, spoken to his disciples on the evening before his death. This is what Jesus said. We read it in John 14, 18. He says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. Obviously, the disciples are not and will not be literal orphans. They're in no danger of losing their parents. But they are in danger of losing their Lord and Master Jesus, who has called them, just previously in chapter 13, verse 33, my children. And in his final message to his disciples, written in detail in John 13 to 17, which we've called the last word, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he is about to leave them. But he's also reassuring them that they'll not be left like children without parents. They'll not be left as orphans. No, he tells them that they are not abandoned. And this morning I want us to look together at the help that Jesus promises to them in his words recorded in John 14, 15 to 31. For that same help is promised to us today. Some of us here this morning may literally be orphans. We have lost our parents. Some of you I know never knew your parents. But even those of us who had and still have the privilege of parents who are alive today can still nonetheless feel desperately alone in the world in which we live. There are times, are there not, when we feel completely abandoned. And we wonder, does anyone really care about me? And I don't know all of your situations. I know some of them. And even the ones that I know, who knows what you feel in the quietness late at night when you're all alone? Maybe you're a professing Christian this morning, and yet you feel in some way that God has abandoned you. Well, God knows that. That's the encouraging news. And in these words of Jesus, 
We have promised help to those who love Jesus, those who obey Jesus. For the section begins with these words. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. So what help does Jesus promise to his followers? What help does he promise to us today so that we know that we are not abandoned? I'm going to try and summarize it and I'm very well aware that when you look at these wonderful words of Jesus, trying to analyze them is a bit like trying to pull a butterfly apart to work out why it's so beautiful. We're in great danger of destroying it. But just to gather our thoughts together, uh, and we can only but skim the surface, uh, let me try and highlight three reasons why we are not abandoned. The first that Jesus deals with here is that Jesus promises the presence of God the Holy Spirit. For the first time, Jesus begins to talk in detail about the one he calls the Holy Spirit. You find it twice in this section, in verses 15 to 17, and then later on we'll see in verses 25 and 26, in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, and then when we come to chapter 16, God willing, verses 7 to 11 and 13 to 15. So looking at the first of these in verse uh, 16, Uh, Jesus tells the disciples he's going to make a request to the Father on their behalf. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor who will be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. And later in verse 26, we learn that this Spirit of Truth is also called the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, but the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now notice carefully, if you've got the Bible in front of you, that Jesus uses here a special word to describe the Spirit. It's the word in our translation that's called counsellor. Can you see that in both verses? Now, the word behind this, sorry this sounds a bit Greek this morning, but try and follow it. It's not to teach you Greek, but just to try and give you some of the background. The word translated counsellor is not like orphan, a direct Greek word. It's an unfamiliar word that's almost impossible to translate into English in order to convey its full meaning. I'll tell you what the Greek word is because you'll have seen it written sometimes if you're familiar with the Bible. The Greek word is parakletos. And sometimes that's transliterated literally into English as paraclete. It's not a misprint for parakeet. It's paraclete. And the word literally means, it's from a Greek word with two parts, parakaleo, it means someone who is called alongside to help or encourage someone. I guess, think of an illustration, if you get stuck in the snow, coming back from Aviemore, the 106 people from our church were there this evening, well, I guess they might need a parakletos, either an RAC or an AA parakletos to come alongside and help them in their need. It's that sort of idea. The New English International Version translates it, counsellor. If you're familiar with the authorised version, it translates it, comforter, which doesn't mean what comforter means today to us. But in Elizabethan English, it was from, in the 17th century, it was comforte, to give strength with. Uh, Let me just give you some of the translations so you'll get the whole range. These are all the different ways it's been translated. Counselor, comforter, helper, advocate, defender, representative, friend, befriender, convincer, intercessor, 
pleader, character witness. Now roll all those together and you get some idea of what the word means. So what does Jesus say about this paraclete, uh, this counsellor that will help the disciples and us to know that we're not abandoned? Well, he reassures them by saying, notice carefully, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor. So if he's another counsellor, who's the other counsellor? Well, the other counsellor is Jesus himself. For the word another means another one of the same kind. Another person like Jesus. That's why I've deliberately and will continue deliberately to refer to the Holy Spirit as he. A bit more Greek. In Greek you have three pronouns. You can have a masculine, a feminine, a he, a she, or a neuter one, it. Now the word spirit is actually neuter. You'd expect it to be it, but consistently here and throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is always referred to as he. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of inanimate force or power. He is powerful, but he's a person, the third person of the Godhead. God the Holy Spirit. Uh, in his little book, which I recommend to you, I think there are copies on the bookstore by Wallace Ben, The Last Word. We borrowed the title from there, without permission, I'm sure he won't mind. Uh, uh, Wallace says, The Spirit would be like the invisible presence of Jesus. So in what ways is this another counsellor like the other counsellor? In what ways is the Holy Spirit like Jesus? Well, two particular ways are highlighted here. Notice carefully. First of all, Jesus says he'll be the Spirit of truth. He says the Holy Spirit will communicate the truth. And especially that Jesus is, as he's just claimed in chapter 14, verse 6, that he is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And linked in with this, the Spirit is also, secondly, the teacher. Look again at verse 25. All this I have spoken to you while I was with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. The Spirit, like Jesus, is the teacher. So he'll not only never contradict anything that Jesus said, he will also not add to anything Jesus said. Instead, he will remind the disciples, as Colin and his children told us, of everything that Jesus taught them so they can recall and record it accurately, remembering what Jesus said. This is why we have the record of the words of Jesus in these chapters. Uh, not invented, as some critics suggest, by the church later on. Whoever in the church invented these was a, a mightily wonderful person, by the way, if, if that was the case. No, the words of Jesus are brought back to their memories. Now, memory is an amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, as you get older, it's difficult to recall things. You look at people and think, what's the name of that person? I'm shaking hands at the door. And by the time I've got your name, I greet you by the name of the third person afterwards because my, my hard drive is slowing down. Or maybe it's just full. But it's an amazing thing, all these things that you remember. Let me give you an illustration. A few years ago, in a remarkable way, my nephew, who was then about 25, came back to the Lord after being away from church and Christian things for many years. Something remarkable happened. Once he became a Christian, he, he could remember all sorts of things that my father, his grandfather, had taught him from the Bible when he was a little child. He could quote, it just amazed me. Not me to church in 10, 12 years. And he started quoting verse of the Bible. And you know what he says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17? I'm going, yes. And, and he just comes out with it. 
No, it's, it's there stuck in his memory, but the Holy Spirit brings it back to his recollection. This is an encouragement, friends, to teach your children God's truth. They may be far from God now, but God can bring back to their memories things that they think they've forgotten. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And not only will the Spirit enable these disciples to remember what Jesus said, he'll enlighten them to the significance of everything that happened, which they didn't understand at the time. So, for example, if you hear last week, we saw in John 13, uh, Jesus wants to wash the feet of uh, the disciples, and he comes to Peter, and Peter says, no, not me, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says to Peter, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later on you will understand Jesus tells them, one of you will betray me. But I'm telling you this now so that later on you'll understand. I'm telling you before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am he. Now, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us insight, the understanding of all that Jesus said. And while only only these first eye or ear witnesses needed to recall what Jesus said directly to them, the Holy Spirit continues to give people understanding today. Friends, if this were not the truth, I would give up preaching immediately. If I thought it was my persuasive words, which are not very persuasive, that could convince you of spiritual truth, that could lead a person to Christ, I would give up and find another career. But you see, it's the Holy Spirit who takes the words, the feeble words that we speak, and gives understanding to people so that their eyes light up. Think of a young woman in our last church who was as far from God as you could wish to be. One morning she came into church and her eyes lit up and she said, I can see it now. What do you mean? She said, I understand what you've been talking about. Who Jesus is. I've got it. Suddenly the penny dropped. The Holy Spirit gave her understanding of who Jesus was. And especially important is understanding why Jesus died. So in his first letter... 30 years later, beyond this, written to the Christians in Corinth, the Apostle Paul talks about God's special wisdom seen in the cross of Jesus, that it was God's special plan. This is what he says, very interesting words. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, quotes the Old Testament, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Now, pause at a moment here. We're going to come around the Lord's table. Do you understand what it's about? Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand why he died? Has it become a reality to you in your life? You see, the promise that Jesus asked the Father has been fulfilled. The Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost. And now when we turn from our sin, put our faith in Jesus, he gives us his Holy Spirit. It's the most amazing thing. So we need not feel abandoned. For we can know the presence of the Holy Spirit as a present experience this morning. Unlike the Old Testament era, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, under the old agreement God made with Israel, came upon individuals, came upon them for specific tasks, for a specific time, and then was removed. But Jesus promises the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 16, he'll be with you forever. And not only that, he's not only present with us, he's present within us. With you and in you. So if you are a literal orphan this morning, or if you feel abandoned, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, 
then God the Holy Spirit lives within you, making Jesus real to you. I simply ask you, is that your experience today? Do you know what I'm talking about? Because Jesus goes on to say, the world is divided into two groups of people, those who understand this and those who don't. Those who know what the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, and appreciate His presence, and those who don't. Look what He says in verse 17. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. And the Holy Spirit testifies to who Jesus is. You see, you can be in a service like this and God can speak to you very powerfully and reveal to you who Jesus is and why he died. Now, at that point, you have a choice. You either turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus and you receive the Holy Spirit and it all becomes real in your experience or you can turn away from it and turn away from him. That's the great test, isn't it? Do you know the presence of the Holy Spirit? As we saw, one of the meanings of the word paraclete is taken from the legal arena, from it, the person who defended people in court. And Wallace Ben comments, the Holy Spirit is the counsel for the defense of the Christian. He encourages us to trust God's word, to hold firm to his promises, to lift up our hearts and to see the love of God expressed in the death of his son. Now, this leads to a second theme. I've taken more time on the first one. Let's move on quickly to the second two. And we could spend a long time on each if we wanted to. Secondly, we need never feel abandoned, not only because we know the presence of the Holy Spirit, but because we experience the love of God the Father. And you'll see this following in verses 18 to, to 26. Now, this is quite difficult to unpack, but just try and stay with, the, with what Jesus is saying in these words. Look again at what Jesus says about leaving them in verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Now, what is he referring to when he says, come to you? Is he referring to coming to them in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we just talked about? Or is he looking into the distant future and saying, I will come to you, because I'm going to come back to earth a second time at the end of human history? No, if you look at what follows, Jesus says, you will see me before long. It's clear that what he's saying in this verse is, I will come back to you when I'm raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 19. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. See, if Jesus had died and remained dead, there would have been no comeback. End of story. But Jesus tells them, I will come back to you after I've gone away through the cross and you will know that I'm really alive. And then you will realize, then you will understand that my mission was not a failure. My death was not the end. For his resurrection is his vindication. Showing that all he claimed was true. Verse 20. On that day, when you see me again raised from the dead, you will realize I am in the Father. And you are in me and I am in you. You see, these words describe an intimate relationship. In fact, the most important and most intimate relationship possible. First of all, it's a relationship between the Son and the Father. I am in the Father. Jesus enjoyed in eternity and on earth that intimate relationship with his Father. And by raising Jesus from the dead, the Father shows that the relationship continues. That I am in the Father. But the resurrection of Jesus from the dead 
also means that he will come back to his, his disciples, bringing them new life. Because I live, you will also live. And an intimate relationship between the Son and the disciples. You are in me, and I am in you. Now, just stay with this. It's quite complex to try and think about the relationships, but it's extremely important. I was trying to think of a way of doing it. I put something on the screen that may help you. If it confuses you, ignore it. Think of a triangle of relationships involving three people. The Son, the Father, and the disciples. Jesus says there is a love between the Son and the Father. There is a love between the Son and the disciples. Now here you've got this triangle. You know what we say, two's company, three's a crowd. If you've got this kind of relationship, you always ask, what about the third relationship? What about the Father and the disciples? Jesus says, on that day when I am raised from the dead, it will make possible a new relationship between you and God the Father, the one that I've enjoyed throughout my earthly life and throughout eternity. The third link of the triangle is joined. So it's an intimate relationship between the Son and the Father, I am in the Father, an intimate relationship between the Son and the disciples, you are in me and I am in you, and it's an intimate relationship between the disciples and the Father. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, I too will love him and show myself to him. There should be a thing on the next, there we are, thank you very much, on the screen. Now, look what Jesus says. He says, I will show myself to you. The word show here is a special word. It's a word used of God showing who he really is to people, revealing himself in a special way. And knowing this, one of the disciples called Judas, not Judas Iscariot, who's already left to betray Jesus, says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? Like any true Israelite, he looks forward to the day when the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, when everybody will see the glory of God. So he says, why not now? But Jesus says, no, at the moment, the only ones to whom he'll show his glory, the ones who will experience intimacy with him and the Father, are those who show their love by obeying his teaching. That's the defining issue. Love leads to obedience, verse 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, we'll come to him and make a home with him. No love, no obedience. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you, have, you hear are not my own, they belong to the Father who sent me. Now, again, let me pause a moment because we've packed an awful lot into that, but let's apply it personally and practically. Are you at home with the Father and Son? You, you think of a day like this in the cold. Imagine you hadn't got a home to go to and you're out there in the cold and you walk past all these houses, lovely warm houses with people having their Sunday lunch and you think, I'm out of that. Now, Jesus describes this wonderful, intimate relationship with the Father and Son and the disciples, which is made real by the Holy Spirit, where you live in the security of knowing that God the Father loves you. You may not have got a human father. You may have had a very bad human father. But God the Father loves you with an amazing love, and you're at home with the Father and the Son, and it's all made real by God the Holy Spirit. You're at home. So do you love God? The Father. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Has God's love been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit, as Paul puts it in Romans 5, verse 5? If so, you will show it by obeying the teaching of Jesus, by putting his word into practice. You see, as you hear what Jesus wants, you respond in love because you say, I love him and I want to do only what pleases him. And as you do that, you experience greater intimacy with him. And with the Father, because the words of Jesus are the words of the Father. There's no contradiction. But at the point where you disobey God, you put yourself out into the cold. If I can put it in those terms. You see, maybe this morning you're a Christian and you say, well, I know what he's talking about. I know all this theory about God loving me, but I don't feel that in any sense. Or I used to feel that way and I used to really enjoy coming to church and I used to enjoy singing God's praises, but really it goes over my head and I look at all these other people and I think, that's not me at the moment. Now there may be all sorts of reasons for that, but let me focus on the most important one. It's this. Are you living in obedience to the teaching of Jesus? Are you obeying his word? Are you putting it into practice in your life? Or is there some particular issue in your life, and it may have happened a long time ago, where you disobeyed God and you clearly stepped out of his will and said, not your will, but mine. I will guarantee that if that happened, you would have lost that intimacy that you once had with Jesus Christ. It follows. And if that is the case, you need to put it right. You need to go back. Come back again to this table, to the cross, as you first came. And you need to repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry what I did. Some of you, it might be 25 years ago. Some of you, it might be yesterday. Lord, I disobeyed the word of Jesus and I went my own way. And I want to put it right this morning. And I'll tell you something wonderful will happen. You'll be back at home. See, the door's always open. He always stands at the door and knocks and says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me or she with me. That's the wonderful thing, isn't it? You need not feel abandoned because you've got the presence of the Holy Spirit and the love of God the Father. Now, thirdly and finally, we must move on. Jesus goes on to speak about a third reason. The peace of God the Son. Verses 27 to 31. Jesus may be about to leave them, but he leaves them with something. He says, I'm leaving you with the gift of peace. Now, peace was a common expression used for greeting people, either when you greeted them or when you left them. Uh, for Jews, it went back to a wonderful Hebrew word, the word shalom, which means wholeness in every sense. Well-being in every aspect of life. However, just as people in English use the word goodbye without stopping to think it means God be with you, you can use the word shalom unthinkingly. But Jesus says, my gift of peace isn't like that. It's not just peace. It's a real experience of peace. It's not peace that the world gives. You see, the world gives you peace that depends on circumstances. You can know Jesus' peace if you live in a war zone. It's not a peace that, as in Jesus' day, was enforced by the Romans at the point of the sword, the famous Pax Romana. No, it's the peace that Jesus gives. It's a peace that remains undisturbed even when circumstances are bleak. 
And Jesus not only gives them his peace and gives us his peace, he leaves them his peace as a permanent possession for whatever lies ahead. The peace that Jesus lived, leaves. So he gives them his peace, he lives, leaves them his peace, which is an antidote to anxiety and fear. Look what he goes on to say. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Now think when he's saying this. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be disheartened or fearful, even though I am going away. In fact, he says, you should be glad I'm going away. Verse 28, you heard me say, I'm going away, I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Some people read that and say, oh, well, this proves that Jesus was lesser than the Father. He just said that I and the Father are one and I'm in the Father. It clearly doesn't mean that. What he's talking about is while he is on earth, he's in a subordinate role to the Father. He submits himself to the Father. He's in a lesser role while he's here on earth. But when he goes back to the Father, the glory he once knew, co-equal with the Father, will be restored. So they should be glad he's completing his obedience, fulfilling his mission, going to the cross. And he says, you have no cause for anxiety, not only because I'm going away, but as I'm going away, the prince of this world, he says, is coming. Verse 30. The prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. He says Satan is active in this situation. He's making his plans. But although he doesn't realize it, He's not in control because he has no hold on me. And his wonderful commentary on John, again, I think it's on the bookstore, if you want to spend a lot of money and get a, a brilliant commentary on John by Don Carson, Carson says, the devil could have a hold on Jesus only if there were a justifiable charge against Jesus. Jesus' death would then be the devil's due, the devil's triumph. But in fact, the devil has no hold on Jesus. To put it in Colloquial terms, he has nothing on me. Nothing he can pin on me, accuse me of. And therefore the death of Jesus, rather than a terrible defeat and triumph for the devil, is in fact a stunning reversal. The greatest triumph in the world for Jesus. And so Jesus knows this. And painful though it will be, he must complete his obedience to the Father. So notice what he says in conclusion, the final obedience. But the world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. And they go out with that peace, not just a greeting, but a farewell. Peace I give to you, peace I leave with you. Now this morning, no matter what your circumstances may be, no matter how bleak things may look, no matter that it may even see in your, seem in your circumstances, and you may not understand what I'm saying here, but let me say it carefully, no matter though it may seem as though the devil is triumphing in the circumstances in which you're going through, be assured of this. You are given the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was conquered through his death and resurrection. He leaves his peace. That peace that passes human understanding, says Paul, that guards your heart and mind in all circumstances. But it's contingent on something, is it not? This section ends with the obedience of Jesus. It began with our obedience. If you love me, you will obey what I command. So, are we obedient? Am I obedient? 
Am I doing what Jesus commands? If so, I have no cause for fear or anxiety. But if not, I have every cause to be concerned. The sooner I get back on track, the better and safer. And here is a place where you can get back on track at the cross of Jesus. Almost finished. Conclusion. So Jesus and his disciples leave the safety of the place where they've celebrated this final meal and they head out together on the last leg of this remarkable journey that began three years ago by the Sea of Galilee. It will take them, as we'll see, God willing, as we progress this series, it will take them through the city of Jerusalem to the eastern outskirts of the city and to a garden. And there in that garden, one of his disciples will betray him and all the rest will abandon him. And the next afternoon, he'll hang on a cross, not only abandoned by men, but abandoned by God. As he bears our sin, dying in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, bearing the wrath of God, as for the only time on record, he does not refer to God as Father. Instead, he cries out in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? He is abandoned by God so that we need never be abandoned. And so that we might know God as our Father. Final quote from Wallace Ben. The disciples of Jesus do not belong to an orphanage. They are the king's sons who are the beneficiaries of all that the Son of God has won for them. Are you an orphan this morning? Or are you the king's son, the king's daughter, part of his family? The sad thing is you reject Jesus and you consign and abandon yourself to be abandoned forever. That's hell. You receive Christ and you need never be abandoned. You have the presence of God the Holy Spirit, the love of God the Father, the peace of God the Son. What more could you want? What a wonderful thing. Let's pray together.